you could turn in your Bibles. We are in Hebrews chapter 12. Yeah. And um, I'm going to say that this is actually the final chapter of the author's whole argument. I know there are 13 chapters in the book of Hebrews, um, but that final chapter is really um, just contains religious instruction and direction and uh, exhortations to the church body. But this chapter 12 is really the final reminder of the point of the whole book, and hopefully you see that on the screen. <laughs> Jesus is better. Um, but that theme has really been seen throughout the book through the five warnings of the book of Hebrews. It's been a while since we've been in one, but do you remember them? We had one way back in chapter 2. <clears throat> that first one was don't drift away, if you remember that warning. And it's really a call to receive Christ. If you are in the position to hear the gospel, you've pre been presented with the truth, then that warning there was for you. If you don't secure yourself to the truth when you have the opportunity to do so, then you're in danger of just drifting past that opportunity, gliding past the harbor of salvation, of forgiveness, of eternal life, and sailing right into eternal judgment. It was a very um, harsh warning in chapter 2. We saw another one in chapter 3, don't harden your hearts, and we certainly see that example in Scripture. You think of Pharaoh and how often he hardened his heart to the point where God hardened his heart as well. I mean, and the point of this is that if, if you continue to harden your heart against the truth, it eventually reaches a point where it's no longer receptive to the Holy Spirit. It's been completely hardened. And so those who fail to respond to the Spirit, if you remember that passage, do not enter the rest of God. We had another warning in chapter 6 and even a, a bigger one, don't fall away. There are people that sit in churches year after year, and they're, they're constantly hearing the truth. They're being lightened by the truth. They're experiencing the Holy Spirit moving in and through the church body, and yet they haven't actually accepted the truth for themselves. They might not be outright uh, against it, but they haven't accepted it. And he says, you're in danger of falling away from that. And when you do, there's really no opportunity to come back, to be renewed to repentance. And then the last one we saw, the last warning was in chapter 10, and it was don't draw back. The warning was really at the end of the argument. His whole exhortation up to that point was giving evidence for the superiority of Christ. And it kind of culminated with Christ um, is the better sacrifice. You remember that? And um, his warning to them was, really, you have two options at this point. You've heard it all. Now you can accept it or reject it. Well, there is one final warning yet to come in this book because we've only seen four. And this chapter really is one long buildup to that final warning. And that final warning is this. Don't refuse him. Don't reject him. If you're given two opportunities to accept or reject, then he finally comes back to one final plea don't choose this one. Don't reject him. So all of these warnings are really uh, a call to true, authentic, biblical faith. And we've been looking at what biblical faith looks like for weeks now. In fact, I looked at it. It was about eight weeks we've been looking at this chapter 11, uh, which we just finished, uh, trying to understand authentic biblical faith. It's a faith that relies on the promises of God, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what's happening uh, in the world in our present life. And all of those Old Testament examples are there to encourage us, 
to persevere in the faith. But there's one supreme example that we haven't looked at. There's one supreme example that he didn't present to us, and it is Jesus himself. And so with the Old Testament examples now behind us, the author looks to in front of us and says, let's look unto Jesus because he is before us. And that's really uh, the title today, Looking Unto Jesus. And we're just looking at these first three verses in chapter 12, and this is a marvelous passage. So I want you to really drink this in tonight. Chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us today, and we thank you for the opportunity to look to Jesus. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with us today, that you would reveal these wonderful verses, not just to our minds, but to our hearts, Lord. How easily we look to everything else except to Jesus. We pray that you would open up the, the beautiful words being used here, the themes and the, the passage itself to our hearts and to our minds, that we might apply these things for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, you might, um, as we read through that, thought some of this sounds a little bit familiar because back at the beginning of the year, uh, the New Year's sermon was from Philippians chapter 3, and the theme there was uh, running a race, wasn't it? Because Paul likes to use these illustrations that help... Uh, Pick, give us a picture of the Christian life, the, the faithful life of a believer. He uses things like soldiers and agriculture and buildings, and, and certainly athletics is one of them. And in Philippians chapter 3, we, we looked at that. The imagery there was of running a race. And in that, that message, we looked at five elements that uh, kind of help us win the race or complete the race. Here in chapter 12, persevering faith is also seen, once again, as running a race. And notice this first word, therefore, the first word reminds us where we've just come from, and it's reminding us that we've just come from many, many weeks of looking at Old Testament examples of faith. The Old Testament, men and women who have already run their race, you see, they've run the race of faith. And therefore, since they've run the race of faith, then that helps us to also run the race. And so really the first point he's making here is there the encouragement of the saints. We're actually to be encouraged by their race. No one ran it perfectly. We looked at every single one of those, and yet we can still find encouragement. In fact, he says this, therefore we also. And remember back in verse 40, there was a, a they and an us uh, um, word usage going on there. Verse 40 was, was saying, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us, the they being the Old Testament saints and the us, the New 
Testament saints. And so here, when he says, we also, he's speaking about the New Testament saints. Because they've run their race and we've seen their life, therefore we, we also, we need to, to run the race that has been set before us. They're not just there as an example. We're not to just go back and go, oh, wasn't that a great story? Isn't that great that they did that? No, no, no. That's for us to emulate. We are to run the race. And yet, you know what? I know so many Christians who are just sitting on the track. They're not moving a finger. They're not running anything. They're not doing anything. We're to run the race. He says, I've just written all of these 40 verses to show you this is what you're to do. And so we find encouragement from them. They ran it faithfully. And yet, every single one of them that was given an example here never received the promise of the land, of, of the inheritance, of all the old. It ultimately was received after their death. We're to run it to the end. And he says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race. I love that he uses this word cloud. It's a strange word usage here because it refers to a large, dense multitude. He's using it that idea. We have a, a multitude of witnesses surrounding us, and even more that are, that are beyond the scriptures, beyond what was mentioned here. There's just so many people that we can look back and find encouragement from. In fact, the word witnesses there is martus. That's where we get the word martyr from. Most recently, the author, if you remember, going through these heroes of the faith, he actually touched on those who suffered for their faith. In fact, I want to remind you of that in chapter 11. Look at verses 35 to 38. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had, a, had trial of mockings and scourgings and, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. They ran the race of faith, and they ran it all the way to the end of their lives. But I find encouragement from this. We're not running this race of faith alone. Many have run before us. If you were here last week, I read several accounts from the Fox's Book of Martyrs, and we considered some of those saints who have died for their faith, some of those who were you know, sawn in two and, and died by the sword and all of those things. Others ran in such a way that they subdued kingdoms. They, they quenched the violence of the sword. They stopped the mouths of lions. They escaped um, the fire. All, all of those things are given as well to show us that everyone's race is different. Everyone's race is different. No one's running the race the exact same way, but we can find encouragement to run because of the incredible examples of faith that are given to us. Now, that part we know. We've seen that, but we've also seen some shortcomings in some of these people, haven't we? And so he also encourages us, yes, to run the race, but he's telling us there's also some things you need to do to run a race. If you've never run in your life, then, then this might be harder to imagine, <laughs> right? But you can't just pick up and run um, because there are some things you need to do. There's some things you shouldn't take with you, for example, while running. Uh, I, I've, I've been at, in several races before, and some people just find it fun to go run a 10K in a full-body mascot outfit. I, I don't know why you would do that. 
I think that's stupid, but they've done that, probably died from heat exhaustion. You can't run effectively wearing something like that, can you? Well, here we're given some things that we should run without, and this is what he begins with. Here's some things to run without, and I'm going to take some time on this. And the first thing he says here is that we should lay aside every weight, every weight. These are things that encumber. Run without things that encumber. Laying aside every weight means to lay aside anything of burden or bulk or mass. That's the word weight in the Greek. It's onkos. Anything that is unnecessary baggage. If you have an NIV, it says throw off everything that hinders your race. And when you think about it, there are many, many, many things that hinder uh, the race. And the author has in mind here those things that just encumber us. They're not sinful things in and of themselves. He's not talking about that because he's going to. He's talking about things that in and of themselves are good things. But when trying to run the race with these things, um, they can encumber our race. They can get in the way. And I I thought long and hard about some of these things. I'm just going to give you some of them by example uh, today. These are the things that, first of all, distract us. These are things that divert our attention. And we talked a lot about things that distract us back in Christmas, didn't we? The busyness of Christmas, the busyness of life, and all the busyness kind of, that's how people missed Christmas. There are so many distractions, so many distractions. And I just have to think about this. What is there in life that is more important than the race of your life? What, what could it be? We have marriages, we um, are, are, are parenting our kids, we've got careers, we've got homes, we've got pets, we've got um, uh, schools, we've got all these things going on. And all those things in and of themselves are good things, aren't they? They are good things. But these things can become the distraction that takes us out of the race, away from Christ. They're good, but the priority becomes of these things becomes center. And so then our faith is hindered. Remember, we're told to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will come as a result, right? If we put our faith first, if we put our faith first, then then our relationship with Christ is vibrant. It's alive. It's real. And there's real joy and there's real peace in your life. But if you put those other things uh, first, instead of putting Christ first, then how well are those relationships going? Right? If, we, if we have Christ being the center first, then our joy and our uh, aliveness comes from him and right into the relationships around us. We can just be distracted by so many things that are good things and that we should uh, pursue but not at the expense of our relationship with Christ and the race of faith that we're running. There are also things that drain us. People are so involved in so many things, and they've been drained in several ways. One is your energy. You're working so much, doing so much. Oh, I just can't. I can't get to church. Too tired. I can't get to church. Study my Bible. I just don't have the energy. I don't have the energy to, uh, to, to do that. No energy to do things like serve the body. No energy to, to do things for the Lord. 
that can be good things. Maybe they're extracurricular sports and things like that, and they just make you tired and, and sap your energy. But they also sap your time, don't they? They take time away that could be used for good of the church or the body or for your faith in running that race. And they also can drain your resources. Things that could be maybe given to the work of the Lord or to meet the needs of the body, those resources go into other things. Again, not bad things in and of themselves, but they can be things that drain the resources that maybe God would want us to use to encourage our faith and to encourage others in the faith. There are things that distress us, worry, (laughs) anxiety. Those things deny our peace, don't they? But we're to be understanding that peace is a part of the gospel, that peace is something that we experience all the time. Paul ended, ended his letters always, grace and peace, grace and peace to you. And I don't know, you know, you look at the wickedness of the world and the circumstances of life, and I, I can see, of course, you could get worried and anxious, but that's because those things become the focus. Christ must be the focus. We're not to let those things weigh us down. Those weigh us down from the race. And they can also discourage us or dull us. They um, dampen our joy. And I think we're told to rejoice in the Lord always, aren't we? You know, I think a way that happens as well is spiritual laziness. Um, It's impossible to be without joy when the majority of your time is spent with the Savior. It's absolutely impossible. But you know one of the first things I notice when I, I, I start to worry if people are going astray? They're no longer joyful. I see it in their manner. I see it in their eyes. I see it in their smile, their lack of. And that makes me wonder, hmm, because you can't lose your joy if you're spending time with the source of joy. Don't let things dull your joy. You know, Paul was in prison And while in prison, he had critics who were um, advancing their ministry at his expense and mocking him. And in Philippians 1, 18, you you think he'd write and say, oh, this is the worst. I mean, how did this happen? Blah, blah, blah. This is what he says. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. Twice he says it. I rejoice in this. I will rejoice. He's writing that from prison. And there are also things that discourage us. There's a lot that can discourage you in this world, that's for sure. But, you know, I think one of the most discouraging things is other Christians that aren't running the race. You have to hurdle over other people sitting on the track and blocking your way. That's discouraging. Because we're supposed to look back at all these examples and find encouragement. And I should be able to look around and find the same encouragement with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet... So many times you might be running that race and you find, I'm just discouraged again. And you get it from a brother or a sister when what we're to be doing is encouraging each other in that run. What kind of things do you think the writer had in mind? Those are the things I had in mind when I thought this through. But he had the Jews that were coming into the faith. They had left Judaism and they were going through persecution. There's distresses. There's discouragement. There's things that will sap your joy. They're being persecuted. But as far as distractions were concerned, some of them were thinking of going back, going back to the temple, going back to Judaism, going back to ceremonies and regulations. And listen, all those things, they're unnecessary baggage. They don't help you in your race. The church in Galatia had the same problem. They were 
running well. He said, who hindered you? You were running well. Who stopped you from running so well? Because they had begun in the spirit, and some were convinced that they needed now to be perfected in the flesh. The spirit starts you, but then I've got to do everything else in the flesh. And he writes this in Galatians 4, 9. He says, but now after you've known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? He says, those things are, they're weak. They're, 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 they're for the poor, poor in their faith. Instead, those things put you in bondage. Be free of those things, he's saying. Be free of those things. Run the race free of weight, free of encumberment. And there are many things that encumber us, and maybe you think of some other things in your own life, but we have to be careful to take stock of our lives to make sure we don't have things that are slowing us down in the race of faith. The second thing he says there, not just every weight, but he says the sin which so easily ensnares us. <clears throat> sin that ensnares. You know, we're all familiar with how easily sin can ensnare, right? We've all been there, done that. But can I make a couple of points? A lot of churches don't want to teach on sin. Uh, it's a bad word from the pulpit somehow. But I don't know how you teach the gospel and not use the word sin. But also there's great warnings in, in the Bible about sin and how it comes to us. And I just want to make sure you guys see these things and understand them. Because a lot of times I think we kind of feel like, oh, I just fell into this. Or, um, oh, the devil made me or this and that. Those are the things that you hear all the time. Not at all what scripture says. I want to take you to James chapter 1 verses 14 to 15. I have it on the screen for you. It says this, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. So just these two verses give us the whole path of sin, how it comes about. The path to the sin which so easily ensnares us, it begins with temptation. That's what it says, temptation. Now, this is what I hear all the time. Oh, temptation came and I fell into temptation or, or I was tempted by this or I was tempted by uh, that. Can I just set the record straight on that? We live in a fallen world. Temptation is absolutely everywhere. You can't avoid temptation. Please understand that. You can't, oh, I try to avoid temptation. Then you've got to live on the moon. I, I don't know. And even then, you still have you. So then you're stuck because you've got your flesh. Okay, so listen, you cannot escape temptation. So get away from those excuses. You're not uh, avoiding temptation. It's impossible. It's always present. But how do we avoid it? That's what we have to figure out. Now, notice what James says. He says, each one is tempted when... He is drawn away, drawn away. That is the mind. The word literally is the idea of a bait and a lure, and you're luring, being lured away like, like a fish going towards the, 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 the hook that's baited. This is the mind. Your mind is the watchman of the soul. I said this before. It is what determines what is right and what is pleasing to God. Your mind says, that is wrong, and I don't go there. That is right, and I do go there. And so it should be asking, your, it should be informing your, 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 your thoughts. Is, is, is this action right? Is this thought pleasing to God? Is this action what God would find acceptable? And if the mind is drawn away from its duties, and that's what it is. It's the duty to protect the soul. 
it's drawn away by the deceitfulness of sin, then what follows? The affections. Notice what he says. By his own desires and enticed. That's the affections. It's not our bodies that are so easily ensnared. It's your affections. Your affections can switch like that. All of a sudden, you were loving Jesus in the morning, having a great prayer time, and guess what? You're sure loving a lot of other things right after that. Your, your affections have quickly changed, haven't you? I'm preaching to myself too, folks, okay? The affections, that's because the mind has begun to allow those affections to come in, to entertain these things. This is okay. This might be good. It's okay to have this kind of attitude. It's okay to respond in this way. Mm, when we should be going, is it? Is this how I respond to my husband? Is this how I'm to treat my wife? Is this how I'm to instruct my kids? Instead, we just let it go, don't we? Affections are what's ensnared. When we get spiritually lazy in our minds, our thought life, our affections are ensnared. And at this point, that's the danger. Sin is knocking at the door, okay? Sin is right there. Then it says this, when desire has conceived, that is the will. That's the will. This is when the will gives consent to sin. If your affections have been drawn away, you're, you're, you're just a hair breath away because the will can just say, oh, I'm liking that, I'm desiring that, and I consent to it. I give to that. That's the conception of sin. And then what happens? It gives birth to sin, and that is the action. That is the, the word. That is the thought. That is the deed, whatever it is. That's when sin actually comes into your life. And obviously, it goes on to say sin leads to death. We're to remember that sin easily ensnares us. Throw off every weight, lay aside the weights, the things that encumber us, but also we're to be very, very watchful about sin. And that begins here. And I feel like a, beating a dead horse because this verse comes up in so many circles all the time. Jody was just saying she shared it with the women's, uh, women on, on, on Wednesday, Romans 12, 2. And the reason is, listen, this is one of the first verses I memorized as a new believer. You have to get this concept down. That's why. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, so if your mind is renewed by the word of God, what does that bring? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If your mind is renewed, then you can ask those questions. Is this pleasing to God? Does this bring glory to him? Your affections are going to be aligned to the right place because your mind is aligned in the right place. Your mind is thinking the right way. But if we allow the world to conform our minds to, literally the word means to press it into the Play-Doh mold, okay, then you have no hope. Your mind must be renewed by the word of God. That is this. That is this. This is how it's renewed. If you're not spending time in this, you don't get renewed. It just doesn't happen by hocus-pocus. This is what renews your mind. Begins there. We can't hope to run that race of faith with extra weight. We can't hope to run that race being ensnared by sin. We're just in a, we're just in a dead stop. And those are the things, he says, that need to be absent from the race. And if they're present, you're not even running. You're not even running the race. So those things need to be gone. Run without those things. But then he gives us to run with something. What do we run with? Notice what he says, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So that word um, endurance, 
Hupamana, Hupamane is how it is, Hupamane, and it's um, constant. It's being constant. It's, it's steadfast because this is, this is a long run. This is a marathon we're, we're, we're running here. And this word, endurance, has appeared only one other time in Hebrews. And I want you to see it real quick because they're really close to it. It's in chapter 10, verse 36. So just make a quick left-hand turn. And verse 36 says, For you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. That's interesting, right? You have need of something. What do you need? You need endurance. What's he say here? You need endurance. If you're going to run this race, it means constance, um, being steadfast, being patient, being persistent, persevering in it. We have need of this. We must run with steady determination. The race is a marathon. Many people start out well because they're just sprinting, <laughs> you know, and I love to see that, but we have to go, oh, let's see how long that, that lasts because it's a long run. It's a long haul. In the end, many people just give up and they don't finish the race at all. But the great heroes of the faith, when we look at them, all of them, they possessed endurance, didn't they? All the way to the end of their lives. They're a great example. The examples of these faithful saints, they're to be encouraging to us. And you know what? I also find encouragement from those that are running the race with me. Don't you look around and go, oh, I'm so glad you're running the race with me, brother. I'm so glad you are, sister. I told you before I ran the LA Marathon, and you would think like that would be the most pleasant run in paradise ever. It was hell, okay? It was hell on earth because it was a, it was a monsoon. It, it poured and whipped in the wind, and it was the most dreadful thing. And, and, and around mile 19, these gusts are coming. They're just, and the rain's hitting you from every way. And when this gust would come, there was the collective, with everyone running around you, moan. Everyone's like, ah. Oh. And it was, at first, it was like, oh, we're, we're despairing of life here. But because I heard their moans and I could hear the plodding of their feet, I realized they're running with me. They're, gonna, they're, they're, not, no, they're not quitting. They're going. And it was hard going. Guys, sometimes it's hard going. And you're just slogging along. But aren't you so grateful that people are running with you? <laughs> I am so grateful. Oh, church, let's just, keep, let's just keep running together because we need each other. Not just those Old Testament examples, but let's look to one another for examples. Now, listen, that can be encouraging. But listen, you might find yourself in a place where you have none of that. You might find yourself in a place where there, there just isn't anyone to look to. So who do you look to? You look to Jesus. And here we have the example of our Savior in verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We can find encouragement from others. We can find encouragement from the, the, the Old Testament saints of the past. But I think we should be glancing at them, all right? All right? You're doing well. You're doing great. Our eyes should be fixed on Jesus He's our ultimate example. He's the ultimate example of faith. And listen, two reasons are given here. He's the author of faith and the finisher of faith. Two things are given here. That first word, author, we actually saw that before, but it wasn't translated author, but it's the same Greek word. It was back in chapter 2, and here's the verse, Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That word captain is the same Greek word. Um, that word is archegos, author is, and it means the chief leader. It means the predecessor or pioneer. 
or author of the faith. Twice it's used in Acts, and the word is rendered uh, prince there. In the margin of my Bible, it says originator. This is the idea. Jesus is the originator of our faith. And you think of all the Old Testament men and women that ran that race, the faith that we observed of them. It says here that he originated all of their faith. That means the faith of Abel, the faith of Enoch, the faith of Noah. All of their faith, he began. He is the author of their faith. You say, well, how is Jesus the author of their faith? Well, Paul, Paul teaches on this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says this, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Christ in the desert with Moses and the children of Israel? That's what Paul says. He is an originator of their faith. They drank that water, that living water. Jesus said he's the living water. They drank that from him. That spiritual rock of the Old Testament saints, he's the same spiritual rock of the New Testament saints. Everyone has his origin of their faith in Jesus. And ultimately, because he's our great example of faith, the greatest example, think about his life in terms of trusting the Father by his word. I don't know how that came about in eternity past. I don't know how that was arranged. We don't get a glimpse of that. I mean, did God the Father sit down with Jesus the Son and say, hey, so uh, I want to run something by you. I mean, how does that work, right? There's some mysterious way the plan of salvation came about by the will of the Father, by the obedience of the Son, and Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And that's what he said over and over and over again in John chapter 5. Verse 30, here's an example. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. The will of the Father who sent me. You know the whole thing had to be laid out. Jesus knew the plan. He knew the death. He talked about it. He prophesied about it, but he also knew the glory that he would return to. And so he was going to do the will of the Father. And we're told here in verse 2 that he did it who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. So we look unto Jesus. He's the author, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now think about that for a minute. Without Jesus' faithfulness to endure the cross, you and I, our faith, absolutely pointless, meaningless. You, You wouldn't have a faith There is no faith without faith in him. But it was his perfect faith that led him to endure the cross. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane? It can seem like a pivotal moment when you come to it and you read about it. In Matthew 26, 39, it almost looks like, oh, Jesus, is, is he shaken in his faith? Is he weak in his faith here? But it says this, he went a little farther, he fell on his face, and he prayed, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, right? In his humanity, knowing the, the, the agony of the cross that awaited him, knowing also the separation from God the Father, that God the Father would turn his face from him, those things are just hard to bear. He said, if there's any other way, let it pass. But again, it's not my will. I'm here to do the will of the Father. And Jesus knew that that suffering that he was about to endure 
would be great, that he would endure that cross, that pain, that suffering, but he endured it because of the joy that was set before him. We're also told that he was despising the shame. You know, the, the cross was a shameful death. It was re- reserved for criminals. It was the worst way to die, to be publicly shamed. He was mocked. Remember, Jesus hung on that cross. Matthew 27 gives us a picture of the kinds of things people said to him as he hung there. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if we will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. You you said you're trusting God. Where is he? Why why doesn't he take you off the, the cross? Can you imagine Jesus in that moment? Hebrews 1 tells us he holds all things together. He simply could have said no, right? And their atoms would have just dissipated and they would just evaporate and be gone. But he despised the shame. How could he do that? How could he put up with the suffering? How could he put up with the mocking? It was the joy that was set before him. What joy awaited Jesus? You know, we get a picture of it in his high priestly prayer. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, it's actually before the betrayal. It's actually before the cross. But he prays as if his whole mission is done and dusted. He's that determined it's going through. In John 17, this is what he says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Wow. You promised you return me to glory. I'm doing it. I've done it. It's finished. Return me to that place. He knew what awaited him. Joy, glory, fellowship with the Father. What awaits us? Oh, the same things. Joy, glory, fellowship with our Savior. Amazing. And you know what? That's why we're here in this race. What is this race doing? Oh, it's making me tired. That's what it's doing, right? But no, what is it doing to you? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We're being made to look like Christ. As we look unto Jesus as our example, example, we, running that race of faith, become more like him. That is the idea. But you know what doesn't allow that to happen? The things he said earlier, the encumbrances, the sin. Don't look a lot like Jesus when I'm ensnared by sin. But if I can be looking unto Jesus while I'm running that race of faith, then the world kind of just disappears around me. The things of this world don't mean as much. That's how Moses accomplished what he did. Remember Moses in in chapter 11, verse 25, he said this, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. To suffer with Christ, a greater treasure than all the treasures and riches of Egypt? Yes, Moses believed that. You see, he, it was a choice, wasn't it? He chose, we choose, we choose to endure, and we endure, and we can endure because of what awaits us. Jesus sat down, it says, at the right hand of the throne of God. And that really takes us all the way back to the beginning of this book, doesn't it? When Jesus is introduced to us in chapter 1, we're told all the amazing things that he is and has done. 
And it says this in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And here we see it. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, the same thing. You see, his faith was perfected. He trusted completely in the will of the Father. Father, the work is done. And so now bring me back to that glory, the fellowship that we had before the world was. And because he's the author of our faith, and his faith was perfected in that sense, so is ours. He's the finisher of our faith. And that word finisher is perfecter, it's teleates. It's, it's perfected in him. He cried from the cross, it is finished. I'm so glad he said those words. I'm glad he didn't say, it's only begun, right? <sighs> no, it's finished. Your race is as good as finished. He's the finisher of faith. If he's the author and set you running, guess who's going to finish it? He's going to finish it through you. Look at the faithful words that follow when he said it's finished. This is on the cross. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, this is Luke 23, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. There's faith, hanging on the cross, dying as a man, saying, okay, this is it. I'm giving my spirit to you. You and I have that same thin veil experience awaiting us, probably, where we'll just be on this side of eternity and going, Father, I commit my spirit to you. I've run the race all my life. You've promised these things, that there is something beyond and something great, and I commit my spirit to you. A lot of people look at Christians and say, that's just like a pie-in-the-sky kind of belief. It's kind of, But listen, Jesus is our example. He went before us. He did it. And what is the proof of that? The empty tomb. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. So listen, we can run this race. We can endure it to the end. 2 Corinthians 4.8 says, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to be on that day. And not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. To everyone who's, who's, who can't wait to see Jesus, the crown of righteousness awaits them. So listen, we, we can find encouragement from the saints, but ultimately it's the example of Jesus. When you're running the race, we need to be looking unto him. And we say that, it's like, well, how do I look unto him? What, what is it? Listen, you just have to be walking with Jesus. It's a close relationship with him, right? If you don't spend time with him, it's hard to have a close relationship with him. If you don't spend a, long time, a lot of time with your wife or your husband, you can't have a real close relationship. It's the same thing with Jesus. You got to spend a lot of time with him so that when, whenever and whatever I'm doing, I'm looking unto him. I'm, I'm envisioning him. I'm, I'm picturing everything I'm doing as part of running the race. It's running the race of faith. I'm looking at it through those eyes, the eyes of faith. And so we find encouragement. We find our example. And there's one final thing, and it comes from verse 3, and it's the exhortation for the saints. One final exhortation for us all in verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. This word, consider, is a great word. Analogizomai is the word, and it means to ponder. It means to contemplate. In fact, our English word logarithm comes from this word. 
I don't know what a logarithm is, <laughs> but it's, it's maths, that's why. But it means we need to carefully calculate Jesus. We need to ponder long and hard on Jesus. He says, consider him who endured the cross, right? Or endured such hostility from sinners against himself. We need to look at that. I've just been reading through the Gospels again. When you read through it, do you, do you see, do you study his words and his actions and his attitudes against people like Caiaphas, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the soldiers that nailed him to the cross, the people who mocked him while he hung there? Do, do you see how he handled all that? He endured all of that for the joy that was set before him. How little do we endure knowing that we have the same joy set before us? And I think, honestly, if we're honest, what we consider, what we're told to consider, what we consider more is the hostility. That's what we consider. A lot of people are focused on the hostility. Jesus endured the hostility. We're not told to consider the hostility. We're told to consider who? Him. Him. Listen, this world is wicked. It's exceedingly wicked, and it always has been so. We're not told to focus on the wickedness of the world. Can I just tell you to stop doing that? It is a wicked and fallen world. You get no hope from that. We're not to focus on that. It says, consider him who endured the hostility of the sinners. You're going to endure hostility. It's a wicked world. Don't be surprised by it. But what do we do? We ponder him. We focus on him. We're not to be obsessed with the sinfulness of the world. Be obsessed with Christ. Be obsessed with him. Why? Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. If you get just weary and discouraged, there's probably a reason why that's happening. Is you stop looking at me. You stop looking at me, he says. Remember these words from Jesus in Matthew 11, 28? Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and here's the key, learn from me. For I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When we're looking to Jesus as our example, and we're trying to learn from him, then you know what? Your soul is at rest. You're not weary. You're not discouraged. But you can't learn from him if you're not looking at him and pondering him and considering him, studying him, loving him, praising him, worshiping him, living for him. Those things have to be present. But remember... Also, that, that he lives today, that he's alive, he's at the right hand of God, and what is he doing there? He is living to make intercession for you and I. That's why he's living today, to make intercession for you and me. Hebrews seven twenty five says, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Remember, that was a massive theme of this book. He is our faithful high priest And as a high priest, he is living for us. He's making intercession for us. And I found a really great quote that describes what intercession means. I think we get the idea that when we're in trouble, you know, when there's a great tragedy, well, then he's praying for us. That's not at all what he is doing. Listen to this. says, there is an impression among some believers that our Lord's intercession is required only when we are in extreme need or danger, as Peter was when Satan desired to sift him as wheat. For then it was that Jesus prayed for him, that his faith should not fail. And this would be correct if our Lord's intercession were like the city fire department, which is called upon for help only when the house is on fire. 
The fact is, is that our house is always on fire and therefore always in need of intercession. There is not a moment when we are not in need or in danger. And therefore, our Lord liveth evermore to make intercession for us. His intercession never ceases and is always prevailing. The very extent of our need and helplessness is the only limit to his intercession. Isn't that great? He's always interceding for us because he knows, folks, we live in a wicked world. And the, run, the race of faith is difficult. And when we run this race of faith, encouraged by the faithful race that has been run by other saints and those that are around us, and we do it looking unto Jesus as our great high priest, incredible. We can have an incredible race. Jesus passed through all the phases of human life. Think about it. And he knows every weakness that we have. But he also passed through the heavens, we're told. And he sits at the right hand of God, and there he intercedes for us, keeping us in temptation, comforting us in sorrow, helping us in weakness. So look unto Jesus because he's looking unto you, isn't he? He looks unto you. So we have nothing to lose but to look unto Jesus as we run the race of faith. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you, Lord, that you give us such strong encouragement, Lord, in scripture. The Old Testament there for us to learn from and to find amazing examples of the faith and how to run this race. Lord, we thank you that we can run it because of you. Lord, some today might feel like they're just discouraged because there's so much to do. I have so much to work to do. I've got so many encumbrances in my life. The sin that entangles seems to be all around me. Just too much to do. Yet, Lord, you intercede for us. You know our weaknesses. You know what awaits us. And you're constantly praying for us. And so, Lord, I, would, I pray for those that are feeling discouraged that they wouldn't. But instead, they look to you. And remember that the strength comes from you. We cannot do any of that by our own power, by our own strength. But we can, Lord, look at our lives and take an honest stock of it. How are we running this race? Am I really relying on Christ? Am I really looking unto Jesus for everything? Lord, would you just help your people just to begin there, to begin to look to Christ? Lord, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for this time in your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would receive the glory from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us? We'll sing a closing song.